as we've been together over these last number of weeks, we have been talking about what it means to be the people of God. We started by talking about our identity, that we're a chosen people, a holy nation, God's special possession, a royal priesthood, and we suggested we should find true meaning and identity in that, and that we should order our lives around those realities. And then we pause to remember that Jesus is the head of the church. Uh, everything is under his feet in this world, but God has given him to the church as its head. Uh, and so that everything we do should be about Jesus and that none of us, either church leaders or, or church attenders or human government or human uh, church institutions should ever subvert power from Jesus or authority from him. We talked about the importance of being unified as a church, that the gospel brings us together. And then we talked about our uniqueness and our individuality, our giftedness, and how we're not meant to uh, melt that away into some cookie cutter composite, but that through diversity and giftedness comes true life in the church. And we said that each of us has a significant role to play and that your absence from living into that role actually doesn't allow the full testimony of Jesus to be announced to the church and to the world. And then we talked about the importance of being involved in each other's lives. The, the idea of sharing life together. Uh, and we talked about the significance of the table and how the table from the earliest church even to today is somehow a spiritually unlocking reality that allows us to let our guards down and invite people into our lives. We talked about how we need each other, that we can't care for ourselves alone, and that we can't grow in our faith in isolation. Today we want to pause and talk about a part of our identity in that we gather together regularly. The reason we do what we're doing today, both online uh, and in person. Uh, call it the sacred assembly, call it the church service as we used to call it, or call it what I like to call it, the worship gathering, that we are gathered intentionally to worship. It is a, a, a sacred assembly, but it is significant for us individually as well. And the truth is that all throughout Scripture in the New Testament, we can see that this regular gathering of the church, not just in each other's lives, but specifically gathered corporately together in order to worship God uh, is happening all the time. Right? We see it in Acts chapter 2 and then throughout the rest of the book of Acts. We see it in 1 Corinthians where Paul is correcting uh, all of their missteps when they gather together. We see it in Colossians chapter 3 that talks about the character of the gathering. We see it in Hebrews chapter 10 where it talks about the regularity and not giving up on the routine and the discipline of gathering together. It cannot be denied throughout Scripture, let alone throughout the arc of the history of the church, that this regular gathering of God's people is significant and should be a part, a regular part of the rhythm, not only of the livelihood of the church, 
but the life of the believer. That is that we are not just jumping through hoops when we get together on Sunday mornings, nor are we checking boxes, but this actually is significant for who we are and for what God is calling us to be. And so, to try to unlock that a little bit, uh, especially because we've done a lot in Acts chapter 2, what I want to do today is take us to the book of Colossians, where Paul is writing his letter to the church at Colossae. And we're just going to look at one verse, though we're going to relate to other things that are happening in this text of Scripture. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 is where we are. If you're following in the Bible app, uh, that should be right there in front of you. And this is what uh, the Apostle Paul writes to the church. He says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Let the word or the message of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another as you sing with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs lifting your voices to God we get from this verse the character of what the gathering is meant to look like and we get answers to some significant questions about why we gather in this way the first is what is the purpose of this gathering is the purpose of this gathering so I can earn a paycheck is the purpose of this gathering so you can check off the church-going box? It's not, right? We see from this passage the centrality of why we gather is Jesus. Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly, or perhaps an even better translation, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. These gatherings are about Jesus and His glory and the significance of of what he's done and these gatherings are centered around the idea that not only has Jesus done something but that he does dwell and can dwell in us richly that's why from the earliest days the gatherings started to happen early on the first day of the week right Sunday mornings maybe aren't the days any of us or the times any of us would have initially chosen or they don't seem to maybe fit in the rhythm of our life the best Sunday morning has been the day the church has gathered for so long because it represents the resurrection of Jesus early on the first day of the week the women and the disciples went to the tomb and found it empty that even in our rhythm of gathering We've chosen a day and a time that represents a God who is alive and not dead. A Jesus who didn't just do something heroic in the past, but can dwell in us richly because the tomb that contained Him is wide open. And so the church, even in its assembly, before any word is ever spoken or song is ever sung, is actually declaring the gospel. That we gather now. Why? Because we like getting up early on Sundays? No. But because the tomb is empty, and that's the whole reason we gather anyway. 
So in our assembly, we are making much of Jesus simply by how we've structured the whole thing. Does that mean that Sunday morning is the only appropriate time to gather? Of course not. Churches can and do gather at any time for their sacred assemblies. But there's a reason historically that Sunday morning has kind of been the go-to. And it speaks to a Jesus who can and who desires to dwell in us richly. But it's not just Jesus who dwells in us richly. Paul is right to say it's the message of Jesus or it is the word of Christ that dwells in us richly. What is he saying? Well, if you've been with us for any length of time, you know the answer. The word of Christ, the message of Christ is the gospel, right? It's why we make so much of the gospel. That is, why do we gather? We gather to make much of Jesus and to proclaim the gospel. That is the purpose of the church gathering. The church does not gather to offer a product to a consuming audience. The church does not gather to peddle some kind of moralistic self-help teaching or instruction. The church comes very simply to state the truth and the veracity of the gospel against all other messages of life that are being propagated to us all the rest of our waking days. It's the proclamation of the gospel. Why? Because Paul actually believes, and we believe this too, that the gospel is also meant to dwell in you richly. That it's not just a, a transactional or a propositional truth that you either say yes or no to, and therefore you get to go to heaven one day or not. But the gospel actually is something that comes to dwell in you through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the living Christ. And it actually reorients and changes who you are. Paul writes earlier to the Colossians in chapter 2 that he wants us to be rooted in this gospel. Right? How does this happen? Through the regular proclamation of the gospel. In that same place where Paul says he wants us to be rooted in Christ or rooted in his gospel, he says, so in the same way that you have come to Christ, so also live in him. And in saying that, he says something incredibly profound. That is that the gospel is not only the means by which you come to Jesus, but it is also the means by which you live in Jesus. And so the gospel is not just a ticket into a church gathering or into a life with Christ, but it is also the life with Christ. And so the church doesn't preach messages on top of the gospel for how we should live. It continues to preach the gospel because that instructs us how we get to live because of our acceptance by Christ and the truth of his resurrection. And we believe that the key to unlocking the life, the abundant life that Jesus talks about, is letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Being rooted in it. Not just accepting it intellectually, but allowing it to begin to take root 
and produce fruit in all aspects of your life. That is, that in the same way you came to faith in Christ, you so also are called to live in Him. And this is the Gospel. Why on earth does the church gather? The church does not gather to offer a product. The church gathers to make much of Jesus and to speak the truth of the Gospel. Because we are people who are prone to wander. Right? The great hymn writer, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, says in there, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And if that is not a true testimony of my soul, and I would suggest every other soul, then I don't know what is. Why do we need the regular preaching of the Gospel? Because we believe other Gospels. (laughs) That's part of what Monday through Saturday goes on in our lives. And so this regular sacred gathering, yes, is an upward projection to the glory of Jesus, but it's also an inward projection to our heart of the veracity, the truth, the validity of the Gospel and recentering and realigning ourselves. Our van needed state inspection this past week. And as part of that, we needed three new tires. Uh, Even I could tell we needed three new tires. But when you get three new tires and one existing tire, of course, one of the things that you need to do is align your car. Otherwise, it can pull different ways. And in the same way, our regular gatherings align our heart because our tires are getting worn in different ways in the rest of our lives. We make much of Jesus. We make much of the gospel. But how do we do this? What is the function of the gathering? How do we live this out? How do we proclaim this gospel? How do we make much of Jesus? And and Paul suggests three things here. uh, And quite fascinating to me, uh, a history nerd, is that these don't come out of thin air. There's Paul or the disciples or the apostles when they were starting to gather as a church uh, after Pentecost. They didn't just invent something brand new. That is, in the Jewish culture of the day, um, synagogues had risen to be a significant uh, gathering uh, for the people. It happened in the midst of exile when they couldn't go to the temple for regular feasts, and it came to be part of their regular livelihood even when they uh, were allowed back into their land because not everyone could get to the temple all of the time, and they saw the need to have these regular gatherings to recenter people on the Torah, the law of God, the heart and the character of God. And the synagogue was known by three realities. That is, that it was the, the Beit Midrash, the Beit Talifa or Tefila, excuse me, and the Beit Knesset. That is, that it is the house of instruction or teaching, Beit Midrash. Right? The Hebrew word Beit means house. We happen to meet in a Hebrew-named town. Did you know that? Bethlehem is a Hebrew word. Uh, The actual Hebrew pronunciation is Beit Lechem. Beit means house. Lechem means bread, right? So we live in the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem is. Uh, I don't know if that 
means anything in modern day Bethlehem was simply named that because it was founded on Christmas and Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But anyway, Beit Lechem, house of bread. So in the synagogues, the, the Beit Midrash, the house of instruction or teaching, the Beit Tefillah, that is the house of prayer or worship, uh, and the Beit Knesset, that is the, the house of togetherness or of gathering together as a community. That's the three ways the synagogue was known. And so should we be surprised at all when we hear the early teachings of what the church looked like, that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, Acts chapter 2, Beit Midrash, that they were devoted to fellowship, Acts chapter 2, Beit Knesset, they were devoted to prayer, Acts chapter 2, Beit Tefillah. And we see this again throughout the entire New Testament as it speaks of what the church looks like and how the church functions. And here again in Colossians chapter 3, we see these exact three things. Do you see them? Right? What does he say? The word of Christ dwell in you richly. So first thing he says, teaching and admonishing, bait midrash, one another, bait knesset, through songs and psalms and, excuse me, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing to the Lord, bait to there they are, right again. All these three things. And they define what the church does when we gather for these sacred assemblies. How we make much of Jesus and how we proclaim the gospel. We do it through instruction, through teaching. Teaching is significant. In fact, the right understanding of the gospel and the ability to teach it is paramount in the writings of Paul to the churches. That they would raise up leaders who could do this. In fact, elders or leaders of the church, their chief responsibility, far above anything else they're called to, is to be able to discern what is sound gospel teaching and what is false teaching. So Paul's always talking about elders as those who protect the sheep from the wolves, right? And what they mean is they protect the church from false teaching or false gospel. We've kind of gotten to a place in the modern church where elders function like corporate boards, right? And the church looks way more like a corporation than an actual gospel community. An elder is not there simply to vote on budgets or to create corporate goals or values. Elders, far above anything else they do, guard us from wrong gospel and point us to right gospel. Why? Because the church is a bait midrash. It's a house of teaching, a house of instruction. It's how we make much of Jesus and how we make much of his gospel. Listen, it is easy in this modern day to be able to get teaching from anywhere. You can go on YouTube, you can go on your smart TV, and there's all kinds of church apps everywhere. You can um, listen on the radio. You can do almost anything you want to do to get teaching anywhere. And yet, I would suggest to you, this is not the intention of how the New Testament church is set up. That we're actually meant to value our local teachers and our local elders and their shepherding of us and to trust that.
that teaching, again, obviously we're called to be Bereans who don't just blindly accept stuff, but we're not meant to be people who are taking stuff from everywhere and trying to form something in our own making or our own liking. That is what I'm saying, that it matters that we gather together to receive teaching in this way and not say, well, I take care of the teaching stuff on Tuesday or Monday when I listen to Andy Stanley's podcast, or I do that by reading my favorite authors. And those authors are great, and those teachings are probably wonderful too, but this is not what Paul's talking about. The second thing he says is that we make much of Jesus and we proclaim the gospel by our worship. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing to the Lord. By worship, he certainly means singing. We've talked about this, I think, uh, around a year ago. We did a, I did a whole sermon on singing and why singing is actually so significant and not just a weird thing that churches do. <laughs> that we sing because God is worthy of it. We sing first and foremost because God sings. It's part of who God is. Uh, the prophet Zephaniah tells us that God actually sings over you. How much more then should we sing over God? But God is worthy not just of our proclamation, but of something, of, of, of some, uh, some way that draws all of us like all of our individual self, our emotions and our feelings into it. God's worthy of that kind of praise. And singing in some way does that. It gets to our emotions and it draws it up. And so singing becomes significant and God is worthy of it. And in our singing, we make much of Jesus, but also in our singing, we announce the Gospel and the truth of the Gospel. One of the things that I love about Adam Thompson and that you should love and rejoice about Adam Thompson and uh, our musicians and how they lead us in our singing is that they actually care what the lyrics of a song are, not just how cool the melody is. Because the singing is not just supposed to be an interesting song, though that helps us remember, but it's meant to have a proclamation of the gospel and the glory of Jesus. So there's lots of great songs that could be sung, but they don't really announce the gospel. We just sang that song, King of Kings, that is an incredible announcement of the fullness of the gospel. And when we finish our service today, we're going to sing a song that I love so much. Jesus, thank you. That makes much of Jesus and announces the truth of the gospel and what he has done for us. We sing when we're together. But our worship is not limited to our singing. Uh, and Paul kind of gets at that in the way that he says that. He says psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing to the Lord in the sense that you can speak or in your disposition living out the reality of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And you can also sing them. That is in our countenance, in our disposition, in our posture, in our conversations, all of these things are ways that we can and should announce the glory of Jesus and the veracity of the gospel. And we attempt to do it. This is why the gathering is significant. Listen, there is Christian radio. There is Spotify. 
there is, and people don't own CDs and stuff like that anymore, but there's any number of ways to get incredible music, even incredible music that announces the gospel. But it doesn't get at this picture of what worship is supposed to look like if it's done in isolation or if it's done only in your car. That there's actually something that happens when we do it together. And so we get to the last thing that symbolizes and in some way makes much of Jesus and speaks and proclaims the gospel. That is that we do it together. It's a bait Knesset, a house of togetherness. Now listen to me. COVID-19 is real. Uh, it is not a fluke. I don't think it's going away uh, anytime soon, though I pray that it would every single day of my life. And I understand that many of us are watching this at home uh, because it's just not safe or right for you to gather with us. And you need to hear me that I affirm that and that I think that's a wise decision. But in so doing, we cannot come to subtly believe that these gatherings can happen in isolation. That this is the new way forward for the church. Because it actually misses one of the three key functions of the local gathering. That we do it together. So even if you're watching this at home right now in your isolation, maybe you're uh, together with your spouse or with your family, maybe it's by yourself or maybe you're going to watch this later on, one of the ways that you can embrace this togetherness is in the chat feature to let people know that you're there with them, to announce your presence or, or to respond to what's being said in the chat feature or, or to uh, join in the singing even in typing and to let people know your presence, to experience that togetherness. We can value that even in this other forum. But let's talk in the larger reality for a minute. Paul seems to imply that local preachers and pastors of churches are significant and necessary and they are the chief teachers. However, in this passage, he doesn't single them out. Why is that? Because the one another is the more important definition of the teaching and admonishing than the preacher. That somehow, in our shared responding to the gospel through a preacher and together in congregation, but even more so in our words of prophetic utterance to each other, or in our encouragement or exhortation or affirmation of each other, we in fact join in the teaching and admonishing. It is not just a pastor's job to preach a sermon and that checks that box of a church gathering. It's the stuff that happens before the sermon. It's the stuff that happens after the gathering. It's the, the text that you will send. It's the, the, the times you'll pray together. It's the, the, the word of prophecy that the Spirit gives you that, that builds up or affirms someone else. That we all participate in that. And so to simply say that instruction is from talking head to listening group of people is to miss how the church is supposed to function in its fullness because it misses the Knesset, the one another, the togetherness. 
And to say that you can accomplish this church gathering in isolation through some just family gathering at home or through pursuing teaching and music on your own is to miss what makes the church vibrant and not simply consumeristic. That you participate in it. That when you come on a Sunday, some of the most profound teaching that a particular person might receive could come from your encouragement to them, not my sermon that they hear. Or the most profound admonishment could come through a prophetic prayer that you pray over them, not through a sermon that I preach. Or through your embrace of them, which announces the Gospel in some ways way more profoundly than an exposition of Ephesians chapter 2 even could. You see this? The gathering only happens and has significant value if it's a together thing. If it's a moving back and forth and all persons engaged in it. You, we need you to live this reality. It can't just be a talking head. And in the same way, worship is meant to be a one another thing. It is not just a team of talented musicians who lead us by choosing good songs with powerful messages of the gospel and the glory of Jesus and who play it skillfully in a way that makes our hearts want to sing, but it's actually your singing that accomplishes it. Paul seems to imply here that even our singing teaches and admonishes one another. You see this? That some of the most profound utterances of the gospel is heartfelt and impassioned singing that sparks the worship of those around you. It's why John Wesley once said, if you're singing, you can't sing like you're half dead. Right? Because it's a... Those two things don't fit together. That true worship is married to actual passion for what's being sung. And that's why in, in and throughout the Psalms, God seems to think that the gathered, passionate, worshiping church actually sparks the worship of the nations. Way more than sending isolated evangelists or apostles or teachers. And guess what? As talented as Adam Thompson is or Kirk is or Sue is or any of our other musicians who play with us, that happens because we knesset, right? We're together. It's one another. We're all singing. We're all believing. And suddenly, there's passion that rises up because it's not just you that believes this. It's the person next to you who believes it. And it's not just the person next to you, but it's the people in front of you and behind you who believe it. And there's an emboldening of faith that happens. And guess what starts to happen then? The Word of Christ begins to dwell in you richly. Do you see it? Not just some talking head who's saying, hey, this could be true. It's a group of people who are saying this is true. And it emboldens and it impassions our faith. And the Word of Christ dwells in us richly. And it takes roots and it starts to make differences in us on Monday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. 
and we are transformed in a Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 kind of way. This is why the church gathers. It does not gather to peddle religious goods and services. That doesn't help us. It gathers to make much of Jesus because without Him we're hopeless. But to announce in His resurrection what He has done and to call us to let it dwell in us richly. And sermons aren't good enough to make that happen. We need teaching and admonishing happening all over the place. And good music isn't good enough to make that happen. We need a church who sings with passion about the truth of the Gospel that emboldens our faith by lifting our voices together and who doesn't just confine our worship to songs, but how we speak to one another and the countenance we have and the disposition we share together so that when we gather, it is the most emboldening experience we can possibly have that Jesus is who He says He is and has done what He said He's done and it makes all the difference in our lives. This is why the church gathers. For far too long, especially in our modern day, the church has gathered simply to try to prove that it has something to offer that means you should come back next time. And yet, the church has the very message that brings life. And we will not abandon it even to gather lukewarm consumers. No. We will say that the church gathering is the place for people to come together, to be recentered, to be realigned, to re-believe the gospel. Not because of a great sermon or wonderful music, though I hope those are more normal than not, but because we did it together. And you spurred me on to love and good deeds, and I spurred you on to love and good deeds. And you spurred me on to more holistic worship, and I spurred you on to more holistic worship. This is the picture of the church. It is not a production. It is a people. And when the people gather, the Word of Christ can dwell richly. If you are on the fence about the significance of church gatherings, I'm not sure I can speak any more impassionedly than to urge you that you are needed here. My faith is dependent upon your participation. Well, not wholly dependent, but it helps. And somehow, though in our personal journey through Scripture, in our personal spiritual disciplines of worship and, and um, gospel reading, though those can be profoundly significant in our lives, somehow Paul seems to think that a key to unlocking the ability for the message of Christ to dwell in us deeply is when we do it together. And so, we gather. 
Why? Because you need me, and I need you, and we need Jesus. Can I pray with you?